Turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and that's the, that's the verse we're going to start with. And then uh, you can also go to Psalm 139, because we'll get there in just a moment. Galatians 2.20 and Psalm 139. As you know, we've been in a series called Alive and Free, and this series has been really powerful for me, as, and I'll share a little bit of that in just a moment. But uh, what we're really talking about is how do people live with freedom? How do we live with freedom? And, and we're asking the question, what if freedom is not simply the absence of something, but the presence of someone? How does that change freedom? If all we do is see freedom from the vantage point of bondage or of being chained up or stuff we're trying to get rid of, then I think we begin to be trapped already. But if we see freedom as the presence of someone, of Jesus himself, of the work of his spirit, the presence and power of the kingdom of God working inside of us, it changes how freedom functions in our life and how we walk in that freedom. And so as we're going through this, it's just been really profound. Last week, we, we, we did a message called Beyond Dirty Diaper Christianity. Beyond Dirty Diaper Christianity. And we talked about change that is not really change. That we're doing a lot of changing, but we actually don't get to a new level of understanding. And, uh, and so we're going to continue. We, we, we kind of ran out of time. So today we're going to talk about the fifth level of change. But let's begin with Galatians 2.20. Let me pray. Father, give us wisdom, revelation, insight. Lord, let the word of Christ begin to dwell deeply within us, to transform us from the inside all the way out. We receive this now in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 2.20, whatever version you have, I'm gonna read it from the Message Bible, which is a modern-day translation because I think it gives us just a different viewpoint. And I want you to listen carefully. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've gone to the cross with Christ. My ego is no longer central is what this version says. My ego, what I think about myself, is no longer the centerpiece of my life. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. Wow, that's pretty profound. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Galatia, and he's saying, it's no longer that important to me what other people think about me. Whoa. Some of you really need to hear that today. That walking in freedom is Christ is being free from other people's opinions about you. And he says, I'm not really that concerned that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And check this out. And I am no longer driven to impress God. What? I am no longer driven to impress God. What does that mean? I, I was a pastor's kid. I'm a PK also known as an EO, ecclesiastical offspring. <laughs> I, was born, I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. I have heard a lot of sermons. Most of them were good. If my dad's in the room, most of them were good. There's something here that gets inside of us that causes us to be driven to impress God or driven to make sure that he accepts us. That's not the gospel. The scripture 
Here the Apostle Paul says, I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. Everybody say that phrase together. Christ lives in me. And the life you see me living is not mine. But it is lived by faith. Everybody say faith. faith. It is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Everybody say loved me. And gave himself for me. He gave himself. He surrendered himself. He showed me who he really was through the image and the person of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful idea that we're going to deal with. And last week when we talked about five levels of change, that's your first fill in the blank, five levels of change, we have to remind ourselves that this is not a linear process. This is not a process where we just kind of fill in some blanks and get down the road a little further. There's something profound about the levels of change we're talking about. Potty training is a transcendent level of change, both for the person experiencing it and for the parents. <laughs> parents, can I get an amen? Amen. But uh, training wheels is a transcendent, it's a paradigm shift. It's I couldn't do this before and I took the training wheels off and I watched my, my, my son or daughter and they started riding the two-wheeler and it's, it's, it transcends everything they'd known before. Now they, they never actually forget how to ride a bike. Something about that. It's a level of change where you don't need the level before it. Where the level before it is taken care of. That's what we're talking about here. It's, an, it's a new operating system. It's an update. It's a computer update. All right, so we got environments. Some people try to change their environment, and they think that's the solution. If I could just get a better job, if I could just get a, a, a better spouse. Um, <laughs> some people, some people they, they wrestle with their behaviors. If I, could just, if I could just get rid of this problem in my life, if I could just overcome this issue, if I could just behave better, and they're wrestling through that. Some people deal with their capabilities, my skills. I, I wish, especially Christians, if I, if I could develop better skill in serving God or, or serving others or doing the things God wants me to be. But all of those are low-level, uh, low-level changes that we make in our lives, we try to make in our lives, it doesn't produce anything. Because ultimately there's something called beliefs, and beliefs are deeply held convictions. Sometimes we don't even know, that we're unaware that they're even there. And crisis or pressure begins to reveal the way we actually believe versus the way we think. And as a Christian, this, this, I think this happens to us all the way through. There is all the way through our lives. I'm, <laughs> I'm 48 years old and God is doing something in me right now, peeling back another layer of a belief that I didn't know I had deep inside here. You want me to tell you what it is? Yeah. We don't have time for that, so. <laughs> no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. I, these last few weeks, as I've been studying for this, as we've been going through this series, I, I realized that there was a, a way that I looked at God that was tormenting me and that, that made me more sad than happy. That made me um, live with a more of a pessimist point of view than an optimism that I think Christ wants us to live in. Because I think optimism is kind of like faith. Faith, optim it's like, oh, something is possible. God is doing something tremendous. So I'll just explain it to you this way. I was going down... The, the, the road of my life, and I was, I, I had two ditches, one ditch on one side, the ditch on the other, and as a pastor's kid, and as a, a Christian all my life, and a lot of messages, and a lot of sermons, I, I, 
uh, and, and now being a pastor for 20, over 25 years, I, I started, um, I, would, I would veer off into the, the ditch on the left, which was a, the, the ditch of professional performance. The ditch of professional performance. My job, the fa- and I think it's pressurized in my life right now by the fact that we're in three and a half years of this church plant and the, the limits of my leadership are being tested in greater ways than ever. I'm wrestling through how to make sure I lead a community and how, we, how can we reproduce ourselves. And I think all that pressure caused me, caused there to be a belief that got exposed. And it's not as if I didn't ever think about this. Because my life, I'm, I'm kind of a, a little bit of a perfectionist, right? I, 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 I live, some of you are laughing, Yeah. I'm, I, I want things to be right. I want things to be done well. And it's weird because I'm also a people person, so I have this perfectionist people person thing, and it, it, I kind of go back and forth. I, I make things right, and that makes people unhappy because uh, they didn't do it right, and then that makes me sad because I want people to be happy because I'm a people person, and uh, that's why I get depressed on Mondays. <laughs> because Sunday is all about that. And so, um, so there's this... There's, I know I have performance issues in my life. I've known that cognitively. So I'm going down my life and the professional performance, I veer off into this ditch and I just, uh, I, I wish I was a better pastor. I wish I was a better speaker. I wish I was a better leader. I wish I would accomplish more. And on the other side is personal performance. I, w- I wish I was more disciplined. I wish I was a better husband. I, I, I wish, I, I'm trying to be a better father. I don't spend enough time with my kids. I'm always doing something else. And, I'm, and these two performances I keep driving down and falling off into each ditch all my life. And it's not as if I didn't understand it intellectually and I've wrestled through it and prayed about it, but I realized that the belief that was exposed is that I know God loves me. I have no doubt he loves me. My, I, I, have a, I have a good dad, and he, he said he loved me just about every day of my life. I know that I'm loved, but I kind of feel like God is just irritated with me all the time. (laughs) He's just kind of constantly irritated with me because I can't seem to stay in the middle of the road. I keep going off into one ditch or another. And and while he loves me, he's not really happy with me because I got issues. I know I should be doing it better and I can't seem to. Now, 48 years old as a pastor, you're sitting there thinking, you didn't know that? What is wrong with you? No, I knew it here. But something is being revealed here that is giving tremendous, tremendous relief to my soul. Tremendous freedom to the way I see God. Um, which means um, don't expect an email from me. Um, <laughs> no, not like that's anything different. The struggle, the struggle, the struggle has been performance in my mind. The struggle has been being identified, allowing my identity to be defined by what I could do. This is the struggle. So number five is identity. I want you to think about it like this. I want you to kind of unwrap whatever version that you think your identity is. um, And I want you to think of it this way. The blueprint of a creative, all-powerful God who places his nature in us. As we see what's in God's heart when we were created, we start finding true freedom. So we've got to let God determine our worth. 
That's really the issue, is we gotta let God determine who we are. What is your worth? Who are you really? He begins to define you. Psalm 139 says this. If, you tur- if, you're, if you're there, it says in verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. One, one translation says, I am really complex. Some of us are more complex than others. And in those complexities, sometimes that becomes the source of feeling like we don't measure up. But in reality, what the psalmist is saying is, you, I am incredibly made. I, 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 the complexities that you put within me are so wonderful. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book before even one of them came to be. You, you know me. You know me deep in, inside and out. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. One version says, how, how much you're concerned about me. I would always interpret that as, he's really concerned about me. (laughs) That's not what it means. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I I awake, I am still with you. It's like even even in a bad dream, (laughs) I wake up and you're still there. I think you may have left me, but you're there. As a father to five kids... I love my kids. I want everything for them. I want the best for them. My oldest is in Russia right now, and he is, um, he's on a missions trip for four weeks in Russia. And uh, we just got a text from him. He said he, he like, because he, he's 11 hours ahead, and so he, wrote, he texted his mom and said he ate raw fish today and almost threw up. <laughs> I, I love him so much. I'm thinking about him every day. I'm concerned about his welfare. I want to make sure he's taken care of. My mind revolves around their, both their, their safety and their happiness and the love that I want them to know that they have for me. It's hard to believe that God sees us like we see our kids. And sometimes that's because we're imperfect parents and we get mad at our kids. Sometimes it's the... We'll get to this in a moment, but we see, the, we see our family, and that mars the face of God here. But what we've got to do is let God determine what we believe we're really worth, what, what defines us in our identity. And so, in the same vein as Jesus, who said this many times, the kingdom of God is like a beanie baby. <laughs> do you guys remember beanie babies? Some of you are too young to remember Beanie Babies, but this is a little stuffed animal with some beans inside of it, and people went nuts for Beanie Babies. How many people had Beanie Babies? Look at all those people. Oh, my gosh. It, I, I can't believe how many people had this thing, and these Beanie Babies, they, they were, people were crazy for them. And if you take, if you take a Beanie Baby... And you look at it, it's like the the contents of it. It's got some material, it's got some beans on the ends, fake beans, all right? They're not real beans, and they would rot and stink, but they were some kind of synthetic bean that they can make for super cheap. If you look at the Beanie Baby, it's worth probably 25 cents. Just the contents. 
But, it, but if you sell for retail, right, the retail cost was about $5.95. But the truth is, when, during, <laughs> during Beanie Baby mania, people were spending hundreds of dollars on these things. They were $1,000 for a Beanie Baby was not unique. It was crazy. And they were making all different kinds of Beanie Babies, and they were spending an inordinate amount of money on these things. And I think, I think this, there's, a, there's like a lesson to be had here. Because the question isn't how much is something worth. The question is who should we ask what something is worth? Who should we ask what we're worth? And too many of us get caught in what the biologist says we're worth. Oh, this isn't, it, it's really just carbon and water and some bone structure. It's really not, it's really not much, so it really doesn't matter what you do with it. So that's a belief that some people have. They don't consider their, their bodies valuable or their lives valuable, so they mistreat them. If you listen to the, the culturist, if you listen to the culture, to define your worth, and the question is, who do you know? What do you wear? What do you drive? What, do you, what are you worth? What do you make? What can you produce? These are, these are bad ways to determine our worth. And God wants to determine our worth. He wants us to understand 1 John 3, 1, that says that he's lavished his love on us. He wants us to understand Luke 15 and the parable of the, of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost coin or the parable of the lost sheep that in each one of these stories, he's looking, the, the, the owner is looking for this person or the father is looking for the person and, and they're lost or they're, they're, they've taken their inheritance and they've squandered it but the father's still there waiting, just, just, just looking, ready. He wants us to see that the love of, of Christ, there is no depth to it. There's no height, the breadth, and the length. It's just, it's, it's, it's impossible even to discern it humanly because it's so huge. But here's the problem. We have, a, we have battlegrounds for our identity. And I want to just highlight because I, I think it helps us understand why we wrestle with believing this. Why we wrestle with believing that we're valuable, why we wrestle with believing, and, and here's the problem. In our current culture, there's been about 30 years of what we would call self-esteem culture, of telling each other we're valuable. It's, other people call it a trophy culture. You play sports, everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> we're not talking about building your self-esteem up by telling yourself, you're good enough, you're smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> that's, that's not what this is. You can't, you can't determine your worth. Other people can't. Only one person can determine your worth. And by the way, let me, let me just give you this. No one knows what your potential is. There's nobody on earth who knows what your potential is. You don't even know what your real potential is. The only person who knows what's locked up inside of you is God himself because he saw you in your mother's womb. He knows how you're wired. He knows what the potential is. 
We got we to gotta lock in on that. And so the battlegrounds for this kind of identity, this kind of understanding, the first one is demonic influence. Oh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. And the feedback I got was people were scared. They're like, oh, this is spooky. This is weird. I don't know about this. Listen, listen to me. Jesus is supreme. Christ is supreme. He has all authority. It is unmatched. When you are surrendered to him, when you give your life to him, when you let him live his life in you, you don't have to be worried about the, the demonic influences that go on all around you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what if I don't surrender my life really good to God? Do I, what happens? Well, okay, so let's pause right here and let's talk about how it works. Let's talk about how it works because I think the devil capitalizes on what's going on in us, our past, our history. It's kind of like a song. You know, um, my, I, we were listening to the 80s, like 80s weekend or 80s songs, you know, on the radio or something, and my wife and I love the 80s. My wife loves them more than me, but, she, but, but I mean, she is an 80s girl, and all the songs of the 80s we have on the radio, and my kids are like, and we're, we're like singing along in the car, right? Like, we know every word, every word of every 80s song. We were listening to it the other day, and I was like, I think it was, uh, what, was what was playing? I said, every song sounds the same, <laughs> right? It's like Steve Perry or, don't stop believing. <laughs> oh, Sherry, our love. Holds on. 1984, baby. They all, they, here's, the, here's the weird part. They all sound the same. <laughs> all the chords, but it, it was, yeah, the synthesizer and the, you know, anyway. But I digress. When you know a song and somebody starts singing it, and then it goes on in your head over and over again. Have you ever had that? I just did that to you, to some of you. But here's the, but here, here, here's, here's the deal. Is the band in your head? Is the actual band in your head? No, no, the band's not playing in your head. But all the memories and all the stuff that went on and all of the words come flooding back because they're, they're like in there. And what happens when the devil tries to influence us, is most of the time all he's doing is starting the first line of the song. He's just starting the first line of the song and then you and I go ahead and finish it. He starts, and, and, and listen, our culture, we deal a lot in thoughts. Our culture, has, and the devil deals with what is most important within our culture. And so there's two things that are super important in our culture, materialism and intellectualism. So it deals with our thoughts and it deals with our, our status. And that's where he gets in and messes with stuff all the time. In other, in poorer countries or, or in countries where there's uh, more overt uh, spiritual activity, he's, he does different things. He deals with um, ancestral worship and other things that, that are core to their culture. But here, he messes with our thoughts and he tries to, Help, he tries to identify us. He creates our identity by feeding us ideas. You're no good. It's all going to fall apart one day. You're going to fail. You're not going to make it. It's never going to work. It'll work for a while, but then it'll be over. 
He starts the song, and then you just sing the rest of the verses. Yeah, I'm, I stink. I'm no good. I'm lousy. I wish I was a better Christian. I wish I was a better dad. I wish I was a better... Most of the time, that's how demonic influence works. And it always takes two moves to get you. You remember? Remember we talked about that last week? First move is his. Second move is yours. You don't have to sing the song. He, and, and here's the thing. He always, he always tries to sing the song that you know best. So whatever that is for you and your past and your history, that's what he's going to do. He doesn't have many tricks. He's really not very smart. He's incredibly deceitful. But he uses the same tricks over and over again. You don't have to be afraid. I got I to gotta, I gotta speed up. The world and our flesh are the next two. The world... 1 John 2, 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. All the stuff of the world starts to attach to us sometimes, and we let it attach. But here's, here's a deeper meaning when you think about the world, because I think it's systems, it's authorities, it's structures, it's the, it's the environment we live in. We, we can't escape the world. It is real. And so here's an example. The example is your family was designed to transmit blessing, designed by God to transmit blessing over generations but instead, in our current culture, sometimes it transmits curses. It, 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 it translates into being damaged. If your dad or your mom were really damaged as a person and that affected you deeply as a child, all that stuff is part of the world system. If you think about the governments that we live under, there are issues there. There are ways of thinking and behaving and just the way that we're, we're surrounded by these beliefs and values and cultures. Um, sometimes the church, sometimes a church will get too heavy in its authority and start pressuring people in a way that's unhealthy, discouraging people. That's a, that's a, that's, this, is the, this is a byproduct of living in our world. Unfortunately, churches are full of people, and sometimes they, they do things that aren't helpful, and this is a battleground, so you've got to deal with your identity as it relates to your family, as it relates to the, 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 the country you live in and not be defined by what they say you should be defined by and not even be defined by what your family says if it's contrary to the scripture. And so the third battleground is our flesh. And here's how it works. You've got the sinful nature, the old man, that, that is crucified and buried with Christ when you come to him. In salvation, that's what happens. But, but here's the problem. We, so God's spirit is living within us, but then we still got to live in the body still got to live in this body. And so the, 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 the battleground is how the flesh and the spirit work together because the new reality has come upon you. I'll show you what I mean in just a second. Here's, here, just pause for a second. Go with me here. Sin is so much, it's, it's worse than we think. Sin is worse than we think. We tend to believe it's behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. And we just define it this way, and this is our determination of sin. But this, it's, it's worse than we think. Sin is far worse than just bad-behaving people. The way I said it last week was, Jesus didn't die for behavior modification. There's something more. It's far worse than just bad-behaving people. And the identity crisis comes upon us when we focus on our behaviors or on our environments. The identity crisis comes... When we, when we focus our attention on how to deal with sin with our behaviors, thoughts, it's like using Tylenol to try to treat cancer. 
Because there's something so much deeper that you've got to go to. There's something so much more meaningful. And it's, it's this. The, go, the absence of God is death. Right? Sin separates us from God. Sin is separating, separation from God. And the absence of God is death. But the presence of God is life. And so what, what God is doing, he's taking what you had and he's taking it out of you. And he's giving you what he has, which is life. And when you define sin this way, it's, it's much more helpful because the way it works is people are alive carrying death around inside them. They're alive, but they're, they're, they, they end up separated from God. And as, as they are separated, as you, if you have death in you, guess what happens? You try, to, you try anything to make you feel alive. You're using all kinds of stuff to make yourself feel alive, to fill this empty space in here. And so that this, this is, this is the, the struggle with sin. Is, it's not just about behaviors. It's about defining what's really going on. Because here's the deal. It's an inside-out job, not an outside-in job. People come to Christ and they begin to, they, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow. Oh, so I need to do this and this and this and this. That's the wrong way to look at it. There's something profound in the level of change. Look, Paul the Apostle wrestles through it in Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through 25. Actually, all through Romans 6 through 9, you can read that on your own time and see his wrestling. He says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Anybody ever done that? I want to do right, but I don't, I, I do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the, to the sin that is still oh, within me. And oh, what a miserable person I am. What, a, what misery to be alive and yet carry death inside of you. But for the Christian, that's not true anymore. For the believer, there is a life that has been replaced on the inside of you and begins to, go with me, work itself, work its way out in your character, in the way you think, in the way you act. It works its way out because Christ is doing this. He says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of Romans 8 is about how the Spirit works in us. All right, so here's what I want you to get. Salvation is not committing to try harder in exchange for Jesus paying for my sins. You need to write that. That's, that's your little fill in the blank. Salvation is not committing to try harder in exchange for Jesus paying for my sins. He didn't die just for our behavior. He died for us. Salvation is eradicating sin and death and separation and filling us with life. And, and it's this inside job. So it's exchanging my old nature for a new one. It's a new creation, not a new expectation. It's a new creation, not a new expectation. So now we have to let... So here, so here you're thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Ross, why is it so hard then? Why, why do I find this journey so difficult? Well, mo for most of you, it's difficult because you haven't really settled your identity. But the other fact is there's problems in defining your reality. So the thing you have to do is define what's real. So let's define our reality. You have to let God define your reality. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, 
You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. So the kingdom of God is not only like a beanie baby. The kingdom of God is like a, an amputee. An amputee. And with all respect to people who have lost limbs, and this, it is, a, it is an excruciating process. If you know someone who came back from a military conflict and they lost a limb, or you know somebody who was in a car wreck and they lost a limb, there's something called, there, there's something called phantom limb syndrome. So the, there's, this, there's this thing that goes on. And, and, and the deal is God's spirit is living inside of us. He, he, there's a new creation happening here, but our flesh still is alive. So we have this flesh, which is what? Um, our mind, our, our, our brains, our our skin, our nervous system, our muscles, our nervous system, um, all, the, all the organs, our nervous system. <laughs> why, why am I saying our nervous system? I said it already, didn't I? Yes, I'm saying the, the nervous is, the reason I'm highlighting the nervous system is because the nervous system will carry the messages everywhere. All the messages of your body are carried on the nervous system. And so what happens is there's this this reality that comes alive inside of us. But in an amputee, what, what goes on is the, nerve, the nerves where it's cut off used to be the nerve middle. Now it's the nerve ending. And phantom limb syndrome says, my foot itches. My, my, my foot is throbbing. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a foot, but it's itching. And so in, in, <laughs> before modern, um, uh, before m modern um, <laughs> medicine, wow, my brain just stopped. See, the nervous system's having trouble getting things all over. So before, <laughs> before modern medicine, what happened is they would just give them something like Tylenol, some kind of medication that would deal with the symptom. But what that did was perpetuate the old reality. Modern medicine has said, we've got to stimulate the nerve endings. We have to stimulate, and that, and that is, can be painful. Dale Swafford was just telling me he was in a military hospital for a long time, and, the, and amputees would, would keep striking the end of their leg or the new ending, and they would keep creating stimulation for that nerve ending. And the, the problem for the Christian is we come to Christ, he does a new creation thing, and then we think, well, I need to start reading my Bible now, and I need to start, you know, praying every day, and I need to start... It's, it, no, it's not... You don't... Do you have to do those things? Actually, no, you don't. You've trusted in Christ and believe in him. What are you saying, Pastor Ross? Are you telling me I don't have to read your Bible? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. You don't have to read your Bible to become a child of God. You've got to know that you have a sin problem. And you've got to know that God is a loving father. That's it. You may not even know that perfectly. And yet, there Jesus is working on the inside of you. Working his way out. 
Why do we need to read the Bible? We're stimulating the new reality. We're stimulating the new reality not per instead of perpetuating the old reality. And old realities are reinforced by all kinds of stuff because we live in this body, because we know old songs, because we know all the people of our past, because the systems and structures we live in. So we're wrestling through this process. But listen, this is the right wrestling. Don't wrestle for your behaviors. Wrestle for your identity. Wrestle for who you really are and who God says you are in this book. Wrestle for what the Holy Spirit says to you about who you are. It's not about your performance. You're, listen, sin has been dealt with. Jesus himself has settled the sin issue. He, he can, all right, you're thinking to yourself, well, am I going to be perfect the rest of my life? No, I, you, you and I might sin, actually. Do you, okay, you remember last week, potty training, right? When you get potty trained, do you stop going to the bathroom? You just do something different. I won't go further. You just start doing something different with the refuse. And the identity of Christ, the life that he begins to live in you, begins to reshape your beliefs. We're simply adjusting our beliefs to line up with our new identity, and that's real change. That's real change. And so your identity is so funny, this little line here in your notes, it's just a, a linear line, which is what I said I didn't want you to think in terms of, but I didn't have room on the notes to do it like I wanted to. So here's what it is. Identity is at the bottom. You got, you're, you're, everything in your foundation, everything in your life has to be about figuring out what your identity is. Now, hey, look at me. Look at me. I printed a uh, Who I Am in Christ piece of paper. There, it's all over the lobby. It's everywhere out there. You can go pick it up. I also emailed it to you a couple weeks ago. There are great, there's great materials. Neil T. Anderson has a book called Who I Am in Christ. There's uh, Victory Over the Darkness. There's so many things. This is the war that I want us to wrestle through as a church and as new believers and as older believers, because we start, we don't see ourselves accurately. Identity is at the bottom, and it is, once it's settled, then you start forming your beliefs. Your beliefs begin to be formed because you know who you are. It's obvious what you believe. Those, those beliefs are shaped by that identity. And then your capabilities be, are determined by who you are. You realize that you are not who you thought you were, but you're who the Holy Spirit says you are. And you have his gifts. And you, has his, you have his power. And you have Jesus' authority. You know, in the name of Jesus is not just a great ending to a prayer. It means you have his stamp. It means you have all that's at his disposal and you pray in his name, not in your own name. It's like if he gave you his credit card and you could sign his name because he's so rich and his credit card balance is astronomical. He has all that you'll ever need and he gives you his credit card and says, hey, here you go. Use my credit card. Every debt has been paid. That's the, that, that, you realize this is who you are, and then suddenly your behaviors begin to be shaped by your identity. It's actually, behaviors are a byproduct. It's a byproduct. Will you still have to develop some self-discipline in the process? Sure, but you'll know why you're developing self-discipline, not for his acceptance. You'll understand the freedom of walking in knowing that you're loved and that you are embraced. And finally, you don't just deal with your environments. You start influencing them. 
You start influencing, and everything's flipped over, and now you influence your environments. They don't influence you. Final passage, and we'll close. Check this out. Paul gets to this in Romans chapter 8. He says, the law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished. Everybody say accomplished. As we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up being obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle. Hey, remember what I told you about my performance, even as a pastor? It's easy to fall off into the ditch of just measuring your own moral performance, your own moral muscle. That's not what this is about. You have to, there's, there's an exercising of it in real life by what the Spirit is doing in you. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them. He's living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious and free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God and ends up thinking more about self than God. But that person ignores who God is and what he is doing. And God isn't pleased at being ignored. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. We're not just trying to tend the environment around the grave. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what is next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. Close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to think about this. I want you to let the Spirit speak to you. What is he saying to you? Have you been living out of something other than God's identity for you? Has there been a process of you trying to earn his good pleasure? Even by doing good things? Even by just trying to be the best Christian you can be? Maybe you don't have any idea of what I'm talking about because you've never really understood a relationship with God like this. Where he's made you into his own image and, and he's, being, he's reshaping you from the inside out. It's too much hard work the other way. Today, you, you want to start from the inside. If you're coming to him, I, I, want, to, I want to invite you to just give every, every definition of yourself, every, everything you've identified yourself with, surrender that to God. Just be willing to say, I, I don't want to define myself by, on these terms. I, I want to define myself by what you say about me and what you've said about me. And that for some of you, that means... I. I I admit I'm a, I am a sinner and I'm, I've messed up my life and I want to bring my life to you and I want you to regenerate, take the death, take the death out of me and replace it with your life. For some of you, it means, 
As Christians, for many years, you've functioned under a set of ideas. And like the Apostle Paul, you've got to come to a place where you don't trust in any of the good things you've accomplished or, or you think God wants you to do and be just identified as his child in the love and acceptance that he has for you because of what Jesus has done, because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Everything he sees in your life, he sees through Christ. That's the good news. <laughs> That's the gospel. And so if you're here, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. But if you're here and you're in either one of those two categories, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Just, just respond to what God's doing in you. And I want to pray for you. And you just lift your hand and say, pray for me, Pastor. That's me. Yep, just lift your hand right up in the air, right where you are. Yep, I see you right there. Right all over the room, way back here in the back. Man, this, this is speaking to me as a Christian. I, I, I'm at a pivotal point in changing my life. I'm on a new level of change. And you're saying, yeah, pray for me, Pastor. Yeah. I'm going to wait just another minute. Because there's a whole bunch of you that have been functioning under the uh, opposite ideas. Anybody else? Want just want to say, yep, that's me. Yep. <laughs> People keep putting their hands up. I'm just going to keep waiting. Are you sure? Are you, are, are, the other, hey, the other way of functioning is awful. <laughs> it's all pressurized. Guilt-inducing. That's not what we're doing. Come on, let's pray this prayer together. You pray after me, all right? I'll just, I'll pray the words. You, let's pray it together. Let's, everybody in this room, let's commit our lives to being defined, defining our identity and who he is. Everybody in the room, say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who redefined everything. Forgive me, Lord, for doing it my own way, living life my own way, trying to perform living with death inside me I need your life I exchange my death for your life I give up I surrender and I receive what you have for me I choose you I want to be defined by you I want my identity found in you as your child. Teach me, Lord. Help me. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I pray for every person that's praying that prayer now that there would be a, a sealing of the work that you're doing by the Holy Spirit in this moment and that there would be a fresh awakening a peeling back of the layers, a scales dropped from their eyes, a, an understanding of their identity that's only found in Christ and the life that he, only He can live through them. Father, I pray that you would teach us, keep training us, because we know here lies the solution for all the world, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to find who they are in Him. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.